I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. What is your profession? Saddle up. Lock and lock. And when you're patriot feeling, spirit is Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome. You're listening to Fire Away with Carlos Bursabe, brought to you by Catholic Ammo, En Route Books and Media, and WCAT Radio, where we're locked, loaded, and ready for battle with today's hot topic. Howdy, howdy, everybody. This is your host, Carlos Bursabe. You're listening to episode 41 of Fire Away. We're back to English. Let's do a quick recap. On the last episode, we had our first episode in all Spanish. Okay, well, maybe not all Spanish, but at least 95% Spanish. Maybe 95.7. So we had Priscilla and David Burgos on for their first installment, talking about the sanctity of life, where they shared their story of loss and showed us how sorrow can be turned into joy through the Lord. For today's hot topic, we're going to continue that sorrow and joy dynamic by talking about Advent, which, unfortunately for many Catholics, they either don't know what it is or they don't care. Uh, This is all anecdotal evidence, of course. For the most part, I say this because when I get into a conversation with other Catholics, you know, they'll tell me about the topical parts of Advent, like the wreath or the calendar, but very rarely can they explain the deeper significance of this particular liturgical season. So that's what we're going to try to do today. But before we go any further, let's go ahead and bow our heads in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so here's this show's bottom line up front. One, Advent isn't Christmas light. Although there's no doctrinal prohibitions to putting up your Christmas lights early, pardon the dad joke, uh, it's just more than our outward expressions, though, like the wreaths and the calendars and whatever other small tea traditions we may have have or hold. Two, Advent is very similar to Lent, and we'll expound on that later. So, before we go into that though, I've noticed, and it's been brought to my attention, that I've already kind of started doing this, 
where I canvass the interwebs for articles that I found interesting or some sort of story time thing that kind of tease up the episode's topic. So I think beginning this show, I'm going to formalize it. So after the bottom line up front, or the bluff, we'll call that this portion the sit rep or the situation report. And if you just want to hear the main about the main topic without the deliciousness of the sweet iced tea up of the sit rep, you can probably fast forward about 15 minutes into the episode and that's where we're going to start talking about Adban in particular. So what is the situation? Well, several things of significance have happened since the last episode, but I'll just cherry pick a couple or maybe just one. So for one, it seems like the immigration debate has continued to rage. I use the word rage because like most things today, it really gets lost in the polarization of politics. Somewhere between the bleeding heart liberal and the heartless conservative, or maybe not in the not not even in the middle of them at all, will probably try to find the answer of what should a Catholic do. So in full disclosure, I'm an immigrant, but of the legal versus illegal variety, I know that might hurt some ears out there to hear, since I didn't use the politically correct term nowadays of Oh, documented versus undocumented. I'm sure there's more out there. And I'm also sure that, you know, whoever heard that will be able to live with it. The only reason I bring it up is because many natural-born U.S. citizens out there that I've met seem to really have taken their citizenship for granted. Anyhow, since both my wife and I went through the legal process, we share similar thoughts into what's going on at the border. And it's really tough to be informed when there's so much disinformation out there. And I, I don't mean like they're trying, not not everybody. I don't mean that everyone is trying to misinform, disinform other people out there. But man, our church leaders, sometimes mm, it's so annoying when I see, you know, cardinals, bishops, priests, etc. present a very one-sided view as if it was the only Catholic-sided view of what's going on at the border. Especially for me because it seems like it's mostly an appeal to emotion. So what I've read so far, and you know, feel free to do a search. They're going to turn it into you know, largely about separating families and denying hospitality to the stranger, which on the surface is absolutely against the teachings of the church. But my question is, is it really just that simple? I mean, what does the church teach? And not just the individual bishops, but what does the church actually teach? And so for myself, an aspiring Thomist, mostly because of my time with Holy Apostles, College and Seminary, I've come to an interesting conclusion. So I remember uh, reading the Summa Theologiae, uh, as opposed to the Summa Theologica, because my, uh, my teacher told me that it's improper to, so, to say Theologica. Anyways, I found a good summary uh, f- regarding this particular topic from a blogger named Kathy Schiffer, entitled Aquinas and the Catechism, A Different Perspective. 
In his Summa Theologiae, St. Thomas Aquinas was careful to divide relationships with foreigners into two categories, peaceful and hostile. Among peaceful relationships, he identified three types of encounter which the Jews might have with, foreign, with foreigners who enter their lands. Sometimes, foreigners simply passed through their land as travelers. Foreigners came to dwell in their land as newcomers. Uh, in Exodus 22:21, and again in 22:9, the law protected the rights of newcomers, warning, Thou shalt not molest the stranger, and when any foreigner wished to be admitted entirely to, the, to their fellowship and mode of worship, in this instance, the newcomer was not to be automatically admitted to citizenship. Immigrants from some countries were not to be admitted to citizenship for at least two or three generations. Uh, for this, The reason for this, Aquinas wrote, was that if foreigners were allowed to meddle with the affairs of a nation as soon as they settled down in the midst, many dangers might occur, since the foreigners, not yet having the common good firmly at, at heart, might attempt something hurtful to the resident people. Aquinas taught that the total integration of immigrants into the life, language, customs, and culture was necessary for full citizenship. While the law prescribed means by which residents of certain nations, the Egyptians, the Idumeans, the children of Esau, and Jacob's brother, should be admitted to fellowship after the third generation, others, such as the Ammonites and Moabites, were never to be admitted to citizenship because people of those lands had been hostile toward the Jews. The Amalekites, who had been even more hostile, had no fellowship of kindred with the Jewish community, were never to be admitted, and were to be held as foes in perpetuity. And relevant to our situation today, and this was actually written about a year ago regarding the ban um, from certain countries, and relevant to our situation today, because of the urgent need to protect the Jewish community, there was no differentiation made in Scripture between warlike members of the Amalekite community and others who may be peaceful. So here's what the Catechism says. The Catechism of the Catholic Church speaks even more clearly about the responsibility of government to protect its citizens, even while welcoming the stranger. It's sometimes reported that the Catholic Church teaching requires an open border policy under which immigrants can enter the country without restraint. And actually, though there are important qualifiers that which must be which must be considered. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it two two four one, the more prosperous nations are obliged to the extent that they are able to welcome the foreigner in search of the security and the means of livelihood which he cannot find in his country of origin. Public authorities should see to it that the natural right is respected that places a guest under the protection of those who receive him. So a nation is not required to accept an unlimited number of immigrants, which would impose a burden on its own citizens, but we should be generous in accepting immigrants to the extent that we are able. And the decision regarding how many immigrants a nation can support should fall not to the church, and the clergy especially, 
who are warm-hearted and who seek to bring Christ's love to all, but who may lack the understanding of political and national realities. Instead, it should belong to laypersons who are familiar with the community's limitations and who can most effectively integrate church teaching into societal practice. So the Catechism continues, Political authorities, for the sake of the common good for which they are responsible, may make the exercise of the right to to immigrate subject to various juridical, juridical conditions, especially with regard to the immigrants' duties toward their country of adoption. So, in effect, it's not wrong, according to the Catechism, to impose restrictions such as President Trump's 60- to 90-day moratorium on immigration from certain areas, while plans can be enacted to ensure the safety and well-being of the American people, or in more recent cases, what's happening at the southern border today. Finally, the Catechism acknowledges that immigrants are only to be welcomed if they are willing to obey our laws. Immigrants are obliged to respect with gratitude the material and spiritual heritage of the country that receives them, to obey its laws, and to assist in carrying civic burdens. So uh, she continues, I believe that the Catholic is obliged to follow this. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm writing this. Um, I believe that the Catholic is obliged to follow this rather than an open border world government type of policy. Prudence tells us that there's a balancing act between maintaining the common good and, pro- and protecting the refugee. And because of this, I urge everyone to temper their emotion and reflect in earnest on what the church teaches and how we can more faithfully live out the gospel. I'm not saying that our church leaders are completely wrong. I'm just saying everyone has a tendency to be swept up in other winds of doctrine, especially those which are political. Now, with that said, how in the world does this tee up Advent at all? Well, for me, all this muddly mess, anytime someone says immigration or people in a foreign land, I'm instantly reminded of the people of Israel and their diaspora or their dispersion. So it's really too much of a story to get into. But basically, because of Israel's unfaithfulness, they were delivered unto the consequences of their action, which involved the Ark of the Covenant going missing, and uh, which is, by the way, central to the faith. More on that later. And then being strangers in other lands to include the Rhone. I mean, like, all kinds of people swooped in and took them and took them. That's why, you know, Greek was such a popular language to be used during that time where we got the Septuagint. Probably another show. Anyways, so for years upon years upon generations, Israel waited in pregnant anticipation. See what I did there? For their Messiah. We see evidence of this in the readings for the upcoming first Sunday of Advent when we hear from the prophet Jeremiah as he reminds his people that God is imminent in fulfilling his promise to them. So what was the promise? Well, to restore the kingdom of God. Sounds appropriate, especially since we just had the solemnity of Christ the King, right? 
Man, I love the Catholic Church. Anyhow, as we see with the prophets in the Old Testament, the church today continues to exhort us to continuously prepare ourselves. Yes, Jesus Christ has already come and you know has already become man, but that doesn't mean our preparation should stop. We have the second coming after all. In this sense, Advent shouldn't be confused with Christmas, which moves us to recall a different mystery of the faith. They are related, obviously, but they're not the same. For Advent, we as Catholics are invited to renew the mission of preparation and repentance and renewal. Well, how should we prepare? Well, let's take a look at the more popular ways of outward expression. Probably my favorite as a kid was the Advent calendar. It wasn't something I always had, uh, nor did I really stay faithful to, you know, opening it on the prescribed day. I mean, who's to say whether or not I opened all the different windows up and ate all the chocolate? I don't know. But, but, you know, I mean, who doesn't like chocolate? Anyways, depending on if you believe most posts on the interwebs, I don't know if you guys knew this, but the Advent calendar apparently originated with Protestants and unsurprisingly had Germanic origins. Oh, wicked what? Yep, that doesn't mean it's bad, though, and that's to you Catholic purists out there. That's right, I'm talking to you. It just means that we Catholics didn't invent the Advent calendar, but I suppose we invented Protestants. Ha, <laughs> just joking? Question mark? But aside from the wildly popular ca- uh, chocolate treats contained within each, you know, daily window, I mean, what else can we get from using an advent calendar? Well, for one, it doesn't need to be chocolate. Rather, it doesn't need to be just chocolate. I'm not sold on the complete removal of chocolate thing. I'm sure, you know, actually, you can add the daily scripture readings while you munch on your tasty snack. So for all the Catholics out there who didn't know that Mass was said every day, if you want to up your game, your Advent calendar game, take the daily readings, print them out, fold them up, and stick them in that window, or, you know, read them while your kids or you are eating chocolate. So that's a good way to do it. And that doesn't really answer the why, though, I suppose. I think the key word here is anticipation. Just like the ancient Israelites, we are waiting. For us, we know the day, which is Christmas, but we also don't know the day day. You know what I mean? You dig the second coming kind of day. Or heck, even the day of our particular judgment, I mean, i.e. when we die. So while waiting, we remind ourselves of the purpose. Christ's Mass. Christmas. Christ's Mass. And we prepare ourselves. Christ's Mass. Let that sink in. Another small tradition we use during Advent is the use of the wreath and candles. At least in the Western Church. Actually, if I was a betting man, the calendar is probably a Western Church thing too. Anyhow, again, if you believe in the wiki machine, the Advent wreath is also 
Lutheran slash Germanic origin. Crazy, right? Again, that doesn't mean it's bad, especially with the wonderful symbolism it contains. So the Advent candles readily demonstrate the strong contrast between darkness and light. In the Bible, Christ is referred to as the light of the world, which in contrast is, you know, in contrast to the darkness of sin. Human history spanned long ages before our prophesied Savior would finally make his appearance and God's promise to make all things new through him. As his advent, or coming, draws nearer, another candle is lit, with each candle dispelling the darkness just a little bit more. Thus, the advent wreath helps us to spiritually contemplate the great drama of salvation history that surrounds the birth of God incarnate who comes to redeem the human race. And then there's the shape. The circular shape of the wreath without beginning or end symbolizes God's complete and unending love for us, a love that sent his son into the world to redeem us from the curse of sin. It also represents eternal life, which becomes ours through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we have the number. The Advent wreath traditionally holds four candles which are lit, one at a time, on each of the four Sundays of the Advent season. Each candle represents 1,000 years. Added together, the four candles symbolize the 4,000 years that humanity waited for the world's Savior. From Adam and Eve to Jesus, whose birth was foretold in the Old Testament. Some Advent, uh, Advent wreath traditions also include a fifth white Christ candle, uh, symbolizing purity, that's lit on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Many circular wreaths can incorporate a white candle by adding a pillar candle to the wreath at the center. And lastly, we have the color, violet. Violet is a liturgical color that is used to signify a time of prayer, penance, and sacrifice, and is used during Advent and, as I mentioned earlier, Lent. Advent, also called Little Lent, is the season where we spiritually wait in our darkness with hopeful expectation for our promised redemption, just as the whole world did before Christ's birth, and just as the whole world does now as we eagerly await his promised return, which is the second coming. During the first two weeks of Advent, we light the first two purple candles. Then the third Sunday of Advent is called Gaudete Sunday, which is Rejoice Sunday. And on this day, we celebrate that our waiting for the birth of Jesus on Christmas Day is almost over. And then rose is the liturgical color, which is not to be confused with pink. Although if you ask your priest why he is wearing pink, it might make him smile or grimace. I don't know. Might be worth asking. But just know that it's rose and it's used to signify joy. So we light the single pink slash rose candle on the, sur on the third Sunday of Advent. Then on the fourth Sunday of Advent, the final purple or violet candle is lit to mark the final week of prayer and penance as we wait expectantly for the soon coming birth of the King of Kings, 
Viva Cristo Rey! Traditionally, each of the four Advent candles have a deeper meaning, which is depicted in the lovely four weeks of the Advent uh, uh, wreath. In the first Sunday of Advent, uh, it symbolizes hope with the prophet's candle, reminding us that Jesus is coming. The second Sunday of Advent symbolizes faith with the Bethlehem candle, reminding us of Mary and Joseph's journey to Bethlehem. The third Sunday of Advent symbolizes joy with a shepherd's candle, reminding us of the joy to the world experienced at the coming of Jesus Christ. And the fourth Sunday of Advent symbolizes peace with the angel's candle, reminding us of the message of the angels. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. All of this helps us to prepare ourselves for the mystery of Christmas, Christ's Mass. Probably, though, the best way to prepare, and when I say probably, I mean definitely, would be to repent. Repentance isn't only for Lent, and actually it's really not only for you know a particular liturgical season, although this liturgical season does really help us to remind that. Why? Because it's in the name of Christmas. Or in other words, as I've said several times, Christ's Mass. So repentance isn't suggested. It's mandatory because we're preparing ourselves for Christ's Mass. We're going to receive our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like on every day of the week and definitely on Sunday from the rising of the sun to its setting. But for this one, it's of particular importance because we're recalling the mystery of the virgin birth, the incarnation, etc., etc., etc. Again, not all things exclusive to just that day, but definitely on that day, we call that to mind. And if you haven't made it a habit, go to confession. Or if you don't like that word, uh, reconciliation. Whatever the case Go. Why? Because of atonement. At one mint. To be at one again with God. Because sometimes we mess up. And when we mess up, we are a mess. So go to the divine doctor. Go with repentance. And let him fix you, mend you, heal you, whatever word you want to use. But go. Please go. And a quick note on confession. Our preparation doesn't mean we're making ourselves worthy, at least not a part of God, not apart from God, rather. So I know a lot of people out there going, well, that's just empty self-works. No, it's only if you let it. You're not forgiving your sins. The priest himself isn't forgiving your sins. Jesus Christ himself is forgiving your sins. But it's a communal affair. So our preparation means that, essentially that we're fully cooperating in God's grace and His free gift, that, you know, grace, free gift of love makes us worthy. It's not that we made ourselves worthy, it's that we allowed God to make us worthy. And it is absolutely true that God's love is unconditional. But that doesn't mean we are not called to do something on our end. We are definitely called to reciprocate that love, which for us means to turn from sin and accept His love. 
His grace by denying ourselves. So here's a good article I found on this particular aspect. And it may not be popular because it sounds very Lenten, but like I said earlier, it is related to Lent. So, Fasting for Advent by David G. Bonagura Jr. Christmas is here, or so the shopping malls, television ads, newspapers, circulars, and radio waves would have us believe. Advent, the season of spiritual preparation for the birth of Christ, has long been swallowed up by the glitter and lights of the holiday season, which, by the way, folks, holiday, holy day, holy day is still religious. Anyways, which reaches its climax not with the epiphany of the Lord on January 6th, but with the epiphany of a new year. Hmm. Consumer Christmas, lamented by believers for years, is not likely to relinquish its grip anytime soon. But there is something we can do as individual believers, both to prepare ourselves spiritually for Christmas and to fight the secular tide. Deus Volt. I, I added the Deus Volt. It is a practice older than Christmas itself, a mandatory observance in centuries past, and a discipline recommended by our Lord Himself. We can fast. That's right. We can fast for Advent. Fasting is a form of penance, which at first glance seems out of step in the season of hope. Yet it is the need for and the action of penance that prepares us for the coming of the Savior, who has come to save us from our sins. And he will not save us unless we first repent. Acknowledging our sins and our need to be forgiven and then manifest our repentance through acts of penance, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Prayer and almsgiving are still rightly associated with Christmas, the season of giving. In fact, today when I'm recording this is... Uh, Give Tuesday, I think, is what people are calling now, which is, I think, a wonderful tradition. I didn't hear about it last year. Definitely heard about it this year. So give. You don't have to just use Tuesday. Prayer and almsgiving are still rightly associated with Christmas, the season of giving. But fasting in the month of December, as the sermons of Pope Leo the Great, who was our Pope in 440 and 461, show is a practice once encouraged of the faithful. What is more effective, Leo proclaimed one December, than fasting, by which we approach God, and resisting the devil, we overcome indulgent vices. For fasting has always been food for virtue, chaste thoughts, reasonable desires, and more sound deliberations profit from fasting. And through these voluntary afflictions, our flesh dies to the concupiscence and our spirit is renewed for moral excellence. Fasting, by depriving us of worldly goods, sharpens our efforts at combating sin and acting charitably. 
But we see from Leo's exhortation that fasting and the spirit that comes with it, far from turning Advent into a shorter Lent, help us resist the temptation of reducing Advent into an extended shopping spree. Man, I mean, like we just came from quote-unquote Black Friday and Cyber Monday and all these things, you know. I'm just saying. From fasting, we receive the grace to gaze upon the manger instead of ritzy displays, the shepherds instead of models, and the magi instead of Macy's. Think on that real quick. When you think about these type of things, what comes to mind? Because really, when we reflect on the mysteries of Advent, it's in preparation for something that we say or should say that we would die for. Would you? Could you? If you could, how do you know? How did you prepare? So really in the spirit of that giving, here's another thing that I came across to put things into perspective. Because I don't like it when things are just, here is the, the doctrinal answer as if it should be divorced from some sort of life application. If we are preparing ourselves, what are we preparing ourselves for? And yes, I said Christmas. But even that isn't the final answer because mass itself, that, that must, that mass sound means to be sent forth. I know we've talked about it before, but being sent forth is to be sent forth on a mission. So we have to prepare ourselves for mission. Now coming with a military background, whenever we go on a mission, it isn't just ho-hum, you show up for work and you go. There's a lot of things that we do in preparation for it. And here's why. Because at the end of it, it could be a matter of life and death. And now, I know this was in the news, John Chow visiting that you know, tribe, that isolated tribe who wanted to be left alone. And I'm not saying that he should have done what he did the way he did it. But it is interesting. Here's an article that came up on my face space from Trent Horn, entitled Death of a Missionary. This past week, a young American missionary named John Allen Chow was killed while trying to evangelize an isolated tribe on North Sentinel Island, lying roughly 1,000 miles off the eastern coast of India. The island is home to one of the world's last quote-unquote lost tribes, or people who do not have contact with modern civilization. Chow had visited the island chain several times before and knew about the Indian government's prohibition against visiting the island and its inhabitants' hostility towards outsiders. In fact, in 2006, a pair of fishermen were killed when their boat drifted too close to the island's shore. But Chow was undeterred in his desire to spread the gospel. He wrote in his journal, You guys might think that I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Even though the island's inhabitants greeted Chow by shooting an arrow through the Bible he was carrying, he was determined to stay. 
The fishermen who brought Chow to the island later saw Chow's body being dragged across the beach with a rope around his neck. Although even believers might question if it was prudent for Chow to evangelize people so unwilling to receive him, they would probably agree that at least his heart was in the right, his heart was in the right place. And I think this is the part for me that is important. I'm not saying to, you know, rush in devil may care style and, you know, evangelize people who don't want to be evangelized necessarily. But at least he knew what was at stake. So Chow can even be said to have imitated St. Paul, who returned to Antioch in spite of nearly being stoned in order to preach the gospel and reassure the Christians who live there that it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's from Acts 14.22. But some secular commenters saw Chow as a kind of persecutor who got what he deserved. In fact, a lot of people at work and some of even within my family said, that dummy, etc., etc., whatever. The guy died trying to do what he thought was right. At least that... That's all. That's what we know, is this guy was trying to bring the gospel of Christ to them. Was it maybe a good idea in the way he did it? Maybe not. But does that mean he should be deride and is worth, you know, being called names? So here's what Trent Horn has to say uh, through the rest of it. But some secular commenters saw Chow as a kind of persecutor who got what he deserved. Ryu Safeth wrote in the New Republic, Chow represented a very contemporary, uh, contemporary kind of villain, wholly oblivious of his ingrained prejudices, a menace in his smiling condescension. Janet Street Porter accused Chow of cultural imperialism and having committed the worst kinds of environmental pollution, aggressive pushing of faith to another culture. She did not use the adjective aggressive to describe the people, who pumped an unarmed man full of arrows and paraded his corpse around like a trophy, though. The main problem with critics like these is that they employ a self-defeating cultural relativism. Relativism. They claim it is wrong to say, my culture is better than your culture, so you should adopt my culture. Yet these same writers believe that their secular, Ivy League, relativistic culture is superior to the evangelical culture at Oral Roberts University, where Chow studied. They also have no problem spreading, spreading their own gospel of legal abortion, contraception, homosexuality, and radical individualism to people and cultures that quote-unquote need it, like in places uh, like Africa, Asia, and Midwestern America. African author Obianju Ekechota recently penned a book decrying this hypocrisy, appropriately entitled Target Africa, Ideological Neo-Colonialism of the 21st Century. These critics also assume that evangelism is identical to imperialism that tries to destroy every element of one culture in order to replace it with another. But a group of people can accept the gospel without giving up historic customs that do not contradict it. The Second Vatican Council said, Variety within the church in no way harms its unity. Rather, it manifests, it manifests it, for it is in the mind of the Catholic Church that each individual church or rite should 
retain its traditions while uh, retain its traditions whole and entire. And that's from Orientalium Ecclesiarum, paragraph two. What can't be rejected, however, is the truth that our merely human efforts cannot merit heaven, and so salvation consists in receiving God's grace through baptism. That's from the Catechism, paragraph 1257. Although salvation is possible for those who have never heard of Jesus, paragraph 1260, sin makes salvation difficult for people in all times and cultures. If we worry about native people's bodies dying from Westerner diseases they might come in contact with, a risk we can manage with modern medicine, then shouldn't we be more concerned about their souls dying from the universal malady of sin that finds its way into every human heart regardless of the time, place, or culture in which it resides? A number of editorials about Chow describe the Sentinelese as being untainted or free from the influences of modern civilization. Street border glowingly described indigenous tribes who still live close to nature, untainted by the distractions and detritus of our Western world. New Zealand author Oscar Kitely wrote that tribes like the North Sentinelese have JOMO, or the joy of missing out. They've successfully, and this is what he wrote, they've successfully experienced the joy of missing out on what's been going on in the rest of the world for the past 60,000 years. On the one hand, that means they've missed human achievements such as the internet, reggae, Shakespeare, hip-hop, and Jimi Hendrix. But because they've also skipped uh, colonialism, racism, slavery, war from invading foreign powers, genocide, famine, and cyberbullying, one could easily argue they're winning. Such romanticized notions of indigenous cultures wrongly assume evil Evils like war, racism, and slavery are Western anomalies that quote-unquote can infect peaceful native cultures. But as Lawrence Keeley shows in his book, War Before Civilization, there is evidence that prehistoric people were actually more violent than modern people. They regularly engaged in wars with other tribes, enslaved and raped their enemies, and made no distinction in battle between warriors and non-combatants like women and children. Keeley calculates that these tactics were used in 20th century conflicts. Uh, there would have been 2 billion wartime deaths. The gospel is not meant solely for people whose natural innocence has been destroyed by modern Western evils. It's meant for all people, regardless of culture, because people in every culture succumb to the temptation to do evil for personal gain. Chow's critics also assume that missionaries only bring with them useless religious doctrines that have no practical benefit and only serve to supplant equally valid native beliefs. Street Porter quotes one missionary as saying, It's true we destroy certain things in cultures such as doctors must destroy certain things in a human body if a patient is to survive. To which she replies, Why can't these zealots accept that some non-believers do not need the words of Jesus or plastic footballs? But street porter and critics, like her, forget how missionaries brought superior moral sensibilities to people that needed to abandon their abhorrent practices. For example, the ancient Chinese practice of foot-binding that involved crushing and disfiguring the feet of girls as young as four in order to achieve an ideal lotus shape persisted until the arrival of British colonizers in the 19th century. 
Even scholars who are critical of Western imperialism admit the presence of Western missionaries and colonialists in China led to an anti-footbinding movement, which gained exposure on a global scale. Another example is sati, or the practice of throwing a widow on her husband's funeral pyre and burning her alive. Its abolition, according to Indian history professor Amita Singh, owes much to the efforts of the Christian missionaries. So modern critics, obsessed with spreading their own secular creed, can only see the task of preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth as intolerant, possibly racist imperialism. But in truth, it's something that Christians of all races and ethnicities have been doing for 2,000 years because they choose to take seriously the words of our Savior who said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you to the close of the age. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. The reason I, again, the reason I chose to end with that as the story for today's episode is because what, for what reason are we preparing? There's so many ways to answer that question, but one of the ways that gets overlooked so much I see, especially here in the United States, is that missio, eta misa est, that missionary identity that we have as Catholic Christians. To go, therefore, we are sent. But we can't just go without any sort of preparation. And, I, and again, I'm not saying that, you know, John Chow should be canonized as a saint. I, I don't know what was in his heart, but I do know this, that if what is being reported was truly in his heart, God bless him. At least he had the courage to try. But I'm asking everyone out there to include myself. I got to ask myself this every morning. For what reason do I prepare? One of the other ways to look at the church is the church militant. This isn't mean the church, you know, from the whatever century where we went around doing the Inquisition, at least as reported by, you know, the secular historians. I'm talking about the missionary character, the crusader character of knowing what we have and wanting to share what we have because of that giving caritas, that nature of giving that we have, that loving character of our church with other people. We have that within us, and because we have that within us, it should be screaming out of us to say, Brother, I love you. I love you unto death. I want you to share in what I have because what I have is so good it needs to be shared. Now I'm not saying to invade foreign lands the you know as in times past you don't convert at the tip of the at the tip of the spear or at the end of a gun or anything like that. What I am saying is 
through this proper repentance, reflection, and renewal, and all the things that we talked about in this episode, people are going to look at you just like we look at the lights of that Advent wreath, and they're going to go, wow, that is gorgeous. That is beautiful. Let me have a piece of that. What are you on that is making you glow like that? And your answer must necessarily be Jesus Christ. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. That's who we have. It's not something, it's someone. Advent. We're waiting patiently, but with great pregnant anticipation because we know in our heart of hearts who's coming into our hearts, who's going to lift us out of sin and into the halls of heaven. But we can't just be thinking about ourselves, our mission while we're here on earth, is that of rescue. We're on a rescue mission. So whenever we contemplate these things, think about that. Do the daily readings. Do the liturgy of the hours. Go out and volunteer some more instead of just shopping. Go out and and maybe, you know, lessen up on the chocolate. Or maybe give it up. Give up something for Advent just like you give up something for Lent. Something to make you holier, make you stronger, make you more virtuous. Make you greater than where you are now because like we said in previous episodes, yeah, it's true that God will accept you as you are, but He doesn't ask you to stay as you are. Let's learn from these lessons of piety, of courage, of humility. And let's do better. Let's be better. So I don't know where this actually fits in well, because it's not quite Advent music or Christmas music per se. And plus, it's kind of random. But it was shared with me and I needed, I felt the need to share it with everybody else. The Tilma from Our Lady of Guadalupe it was set to music somehow, like the star pattern on there. There's a long story about it. Hopefully I can get someone on to talk about the entire thing. But the music that came from the Tilma. Now, if you guys don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the uh, the thing from Juan Diego. He opened and it was roses, the, the image, the whole nine yards from Our Lady of Guadalupe. Anyhow. Because in the latter parts of Advent, we're going to hear more naturally, more and more from uh, and from Our Lady. Just listen to this.
So, like I said, random, right? But at the same time, I didn't know how to segue it in there. I just know that I needed to share it. I just know that it was beautiful. And I know that it had something to do with Advent. So, there you go. So, with that, I do believe I hear our music in the background letting us know that we're out of time for this week's episode of I Thought You'd Like to Know. I really appreciate for everyone who's listening. And yes, as you guys can tell, I got my voice back, at least for the most part. So for a quick recap on episode 41, we talked about Advent. We talked about how it's not Christmas light. It's not even Lent light. It's its own thing, although it's related to both, definitely. And that we should be preparing for the coming of Christ both in the way that we remember Christmas, his birth, but also his second coming for when we hope and we expect to be with him forever and ever. But we, but before we finish, let's go ahead and bow our heads in a closing prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me, within thy wounds hide me, suffer me not to be separated from thee, from the malicious enemy defend me, in the hour of my death call me and bid me come unto thee, that I may praise thee with thy saints and with thy angels, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. For more thought-provoking, soul-enriching content, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under at Catholic Ammo. Again, that's at Catholic Ammo. And be sure to check out more Fire Away at WCATradio.com forward slash Fire Away. This is your host, Carlos Bursabe. Until next time, keep mission-focused and stay locked, loaded, and ready. Failure is not an option. Bye-bye, boys! Have fun storming the castle! Think it'll work? It would take a miracle. Bye-bye! We hope you enjoyed the program, and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.